Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city as Peter and Andrew. Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote of Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael answered, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. Now, when Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael answered, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believed. You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Where do we find courage as evangelists? Where do we find courage as evangelists? I mean, to be a Christian means to be an evangelist, a witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, and you are witnesses of these things, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To be a Christian is to be an evangelist, to share the good news of God in Christ Jesus with the world. And yet, if we're honest, most of us are pretty terrified of being evangelists. We struggle with it. We're fearful of being evangelists, being witnesses where we feel inadequate. And also sometimes I think the problem is bad caricatures. We don't want to be those kinds of witnesses we see out in the world. It's like the, the man who's very, very inebriated getting onto the city bus. You know, this very drunk man stumbles onto the bus and he's looking around and this little church lady says to him, you know you're going straight to hell. That's her evangelism, I guess. <laughs> and the man looks around the bus a bit confused and says, oh man, did I get on the wrong bus again? <laughs> but the challenge is that we actually have a bigger issue that's beyond fear, beyond inadequacy. We've got a bad theology of conversion and evangelism. The reason that we don't press into evangelism, that we don't live out this call more in our lives is because we've got our doctrine messed up around evangelism. Here's what I mean. We begin to have this enormous burden placed on our shoulders when we think of evangelism, reaching the world. This burden gets placed on our shoulders that says, it is up to you to get people converted with the gospel. It's up to you to answer every question or concern they might raise. And if you actually see someone accept Jesus, you take personal total responsibility for that person. The burden just gets bigger and bigger on our shoulders. I remember early on as a new Christian, I felt that burden in such a huge way. 
I thought, man, I got to read every book on apologetics, right? The defense of Christianity. Because if I'm going to be a witness, any question they may ask, I have got to be able to have an answer. And that's actually not what scripture says. It doesn't say you've got an answer for every question they give you. First Peter 3 says, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. It doesn't say you have to answer every thing. Don't get me wrong. Apologetics, right? Intellectual defenses for the faith. Powerful ministry. It breaks down walls. It helps people hear the gospel in ways. But let's be, let's be clear. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. Right? Barriers come down. It paves the way. But ultimately something more is required. Right? It, the burden of us being able to convince people and having an answer for every question they may raise is part of the burden of evangelism. The reason I don't speak. But also the other side of it I remember sitting in church, that burden of, of responsibility. I remember sitting in church a number of years ago and uh, in, when I was in seminary and the pastor, after preaching a pretty evangelistic sermon, said, okay, everybody, I'm about to lead the congregation and, and, and there's going to be the sinner's prayer offered, an opportunity for people to receive Jesus. And he said, at the end of that prayer, people who have received Jesus are going to put their hands up. And I'll tell you this, if you're sitting in a pew with someone who put their hand up, they accepted Jesus today. You have to take them for lunch today. And I remember praying, oh Lord, I pray that whoever gets converted in this room is not sitting in my pew. I, I, I'm a poor grad student. I've got 300 pages to read before tomorrow. I, I, I can't take this burden. We feel that burden of evangelism and it, it handicaps us. It stops us short of living into the joyful, burden-free call that this is in our lives. Look in contrast at Philip. Here, here in John chapter 1, look at this unburdened, uncoercive approach to evangelism. Philip does not bear all that burden I just described. See, in verse 43, we find out that Philip meets Jesus. Jesus finds him, says, follow me. Philip says, yes. He becomes a believer, a disciple. He's following after Jesus. We find out in verse 45 that he goes to Nathanael. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him in whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, effectively what Philip is saying to Nathanael, his friend, is we found the guy we've been waiting for. He answers all the questions I have. He, he is the one I have longed for and I've found him and I want you to experience what I've experienced. Right? He's, he's witnessing, he's witnessing his experience of Jesus. But listen what happens in verse 44. Ah, here's the burden, right? Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now he's not really you know, slamming Nazareth necessarily as a town. What he's saying is actually a theological concern. Nathaniel's saying, okay, hold on, buddy. You think you found the Messiah? There's nothing in the Hebrew Bible that says the Messiah comes out of Nazareth. The Messiah, Philip, come on, bonehead. He comes from Bethlehem. Now, of course, Philip and Nathaniel don't know the Christmas story necessarily, that he was born in Bethlehem and he just happens to be living in Nazareth now. Right? The point is that Nathaniel's raising this theological concern. And what is Philip's response? Does he argue with him? Does he get all stressed about it? Does he say, oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me go think about that, study it before we continue the conversation. No, he says in verse 46, come and see. Listen to that unburdened approach to evangelism. I can't necessarily answer all your concerns and questions, but why don't you come and experience? Come and see what I see. 
See, Philip understands the theology of conversion. The theology behind our evangelism is that only God can convert a heart. Only Jesus interacting with a human being can transform and reshape that heart. Our job within this evangelistic exercise is to invite the world to come and see Jesus. Ah, you might say, here's the problem, right? I mean, Philip inviting Nathaniel to come and see Jesus literally means, you know, let's go down the road. Jesus is physically located down the road. You can actually go and see him. How do we today invite the world to come and see Jesus. This is post-ascension. He's the king of the cosmos, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not quite the same, is it? But what if it is? You know, we pray a prayer every Sunday as we're about to go out of the service that actually tells us where people can go, come and meet Jesus, where people can meet the risen Lord Jesus. Because we pray this in the post-communion prayer. We say, Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son. In other words, like 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says, you in Christ are the body of Christ here on earth. Various members of his body. I mean, can you, can you wrap your head around that? That Jesus... The king of the cosmos, the savior of the world, hasn't just redeemed us to save us from eternal destruction, but has saved us to become a new kind of people in the world, his body. So that as people interact with his body, his church, they encounter Christ. As they come into church, they hear Christ's word. And as those words are spoken over them, they encounter the story and the life of the teaching of Jesus. They come into the church and they experience the sacraments. They see on display before them the whole gospel. And as they come into the church, they experience what it means for a community to become more and more like their Savior. That as he transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become a different kind of people. It's like Tertullian one of the church fathers said in the pagan world, the pagan world would look on the church in the early church and say these words. They say, look how they love one another when they, the pagan world, hate one another. Look at how they're willing to die for one another where the pagan world is so willing to kill one another. Right? Tertullian was saying there's an experience that people have within the church, within the body of Christ, where they experience Jesus in the same kind of way that Nathaniel and Philip experienced Jesus here in John 1. Jesus dwells in the midst of his people. And we, the church, therefore, are inviting the world to come and see Jesus right here. Word, sacraments, community, Christ-like people putting on display our Savior for the world. That's how people come and see. They come into the church. Now, what's amazing because Philip's got his theology straight, he understands that it's Jesus, it's coming and experiencing Jesus that will ultimately make that transformation. Then Philip has incredible courage to invite. He invites Nathaniel. There's no worry. There's no burden there. And this is precisely the unburdened evangelism that Jesus wants you and I to have. 
The unburdened, uncoercive evangelism that is simply inviting the world to come and see. Because here's what happened. We get a little window in this text into what happens when a person comes and sees Jesus. When a person actually begins to interact with Jesus. A person receives that invitation that we offer. See, when a person is invited to come and see Jesus, Jesus first identifies the problem. We see that in the text. He's a master at getting right to the problem, right to the root issue. With Nathaniel, opening words to Nathaniel, he gets right at the root problem. But next, after he gets to the root problem, Jesus gets very personal. I mean, it's kind of awkward how personal Jesus gets. Deeply personal. But not only does he identify the problem and get very, very personal, finally, Jesus shows Nathaniel, and he shows us who are invited in. He shows us his passion. He shows us the cross and the resurrection. It's all in this text. So quickly, um, we, when we invite a person to come and see, Jesus first identifies the problem, right? It's in verse 47. What's the first word that Jesus says to Nathaniel? He sees Nathaniel coming, verse 47. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, you gotta be careful with this because it can sound at first like Jesus is saying, oh, Nathaniel, good, righteous, sinless man, right? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Almost like Nathaniel, man, you've got it all together already. You don't even need me. But it's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus is saying almost the exact opposite in this phrase. You see, when Jesus quotes the Hebrew Bible, which he's doing here, and when Paul quotes the Hebrew Bible, when John quotes the Hebrew Bible, we have to have ears that can hear where is that scripture they're pointing to. Because the assumption of Jesus and Paul and John is that when they quote something out of the Old Testament, that we have such a good knowledge of the Old Testament that we're going to fill the whole context in. See, Jesus is tearing one phrase out of Psalm 32. And if you don't know your Hebrew Bible, like those people knew their Hebrew Bible, you might think he's saying that Nathaniel's sinless. He's not saying that at all. What does Psalm 32 say? Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, what Jesus is really saying to Nathaniel is not, oh man, you've got it all together. What Jesus is actually saying is, hey, Nathaniel, you need to hear Psalm 32. Isn't it true, Nathaniel? Oh, you know this, Nathaniel. How important, how important forgiveness is. You know among all people just how important forgiveness is. See, what Jesus is doing is not saying he's righteous. He's saying, Nathaniel, you and I both know how desperately important forgiveness is because we both know how real sin is in our lives. See what's completely the other way around? What Jesus is doing is identifying the problem. He's confronting the problem of sin. And we need to have our sin confronted. We need that problem identified. Every human being does. But here's the problem. We as Christians often think it's our responsibility to confront the world with their sin, right? We again are getting the wrong theology of evangelism. 
Our job is to invite them to come and see Jesus and let Jesus, through his word, through his sacraments, through this community fellowship, convict people of the problem of their sin. It gets ugly when we try to take Jesus' role and tell everybody about their sin. It wasn't long ago, a few months ago, last term, Jasper High School, where my second oldest daughter goes to, one morning during car lines, there's a man standing outside. Some of you saw this on Facebook. There's a man standing outside Jasper High School in car lines with a placard that says, repent and save yourself from hell. Now, I was hugely offended, and I wrote to the principal, and I apologized I said to the principal, I said, this man is not a member of my congregation as best I know. (laughs) And I said, but let me apologize on behalf of the church. I said, because all this did was reinforce a negative review of Christianity to a increasingly secular world that doesn't know Jesus. How effective is that approach? In fact, then I wrote later in the letter, I said, on a lighter note, I must say about the placard that at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning in car lines, no one needs to be told about hell. They're already experiencing it. (laughs) See, we do a terrible job when we try to take the job of convicting others of their sin. Jesus will identify the problem through his word, through his sacraments in the life of the church. And he does it brilliantly. You cannot come to church and hear the word of God opened the stories about Jesus' life, his teaching, his parables, and not get confronted with the reality of your sin. Be confronted with the reality of the problem in your life. I think of Peter when he's in the boat with Jesus. You know that moment when he's in the boat with Jesus and it's early on, he's just getting to know Jesus, doesn't quite know who he is yet. And they've been fishing all night and they don't catch anything. And so in Luke chapter five, Jesus says, well, put the net on the other side of the boat and you'll catch some. And and, and, and Peter's like, seriously? Really? You, do you even know how to fish? You know, and, and, but reluctantly kind of puts the net in. And then they catch this massive load of fish. And what is Peter's response? In that moment, he realizes who's in the boat with him. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, it's Jesus in his presence that we begin to experience the true problem which we face. Our wretchedness, our brokenness is brought on display in his presence. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us there. It it gets worse before it gets better. He gets really personal. See, he identifies the problem and then he gets really personal, really personal. Verse 48, Nathanael asks, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, for 2,000 years, preachers and Bible scholars have come up with every kind of theory in the world of what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, right? What was he doing under the fig tree? And I think actually it's almost like a Rorschach test. It's like an inkblot test, right? You're going to see in it whatever you want. In other words, whatever you think Nathaniel's doing under the tree, that probably says much more about you than anyone else. (laughs) What was he doing under the tree? See, we don't know, but here's what matters is it was private and it was deeply personal. And by Jesus even referencing it, Jesus saying, I know you, I know everything about you. I even know about under the fig tree. It brings upon almost 
conversion for him, a near full conversion. He, he, he says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I mean, to encounter someone who knows you to the very core. This is what we find in the scriptures. We find in the church that we are interacting with one who knows everything about us, even the under the fig tree stuff, knows everything about us. But you know what's amazing? Is in that we see grace, unearned kindness and favor. Because you hear that? You hear, the, hear that language carefully. Before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Which right there brings forth the point. This isn't about Philip. Like before Philip even got involved, I saw you, right? But even more so, do you hear the grace? I saw you. I know it all. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret. And even so, I still want you. I still love you. See, it's one thing for Jesus to, to show us the problem of our sin. But as we begin to understand that he knows everything about our sin, and then here in Scripture, to, to come and receive the sacrament that says, yes, broken sinner that you are, the depth of it all, he knows it all, yet still he loves you. It's not like he chose us and then, you know, gets to know us a bit and goes, is there a return policy now that I know you? Now, before the foundation of the world, he knew us and he called us. This is grace. It's like in the last battle, the final book in the Narnia Chronicles where Emeth, the foreign prince who meets Aslan, the, the Jesus figure, the lion in Narnia. And, and he says this, of his encounter, his coming to see Aslan. He says, And since then, O kings and ladies, I have been wandering to find him, and my happiness is so great that it even weakens me like a wound. And this, the marvel of marvels, that he called me beloved. Me, who am but as a dog. See, Emmeth understands the depth of his brokenness and the depth of his sin and the fact that God sees us to the very core of who we are and even so loves us. We can't do that for people. We can seek to grow more like Christ and to love radically, but we cannot love people like Jesus loves them. They can only experience it as they come and see him. Jesus convicts us of our problem. And when we come and see, he shows us just how personal, deeply personal he'll be with us. And he wants to be deeply personal with us. But not just that. Above all, when we invite a person to come and see Jesus, Jesus shows to that person his passion. He shows them the ultimate expression of the gospel, the passion, those holy days in Lent, his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, his mock trial, his flogging, his crawling up with a cross on his back to Calvary, his crucifixion and his death. 
This is what a person will see as they come and meet Jesus in his church. See, in our text, in verse 51, Jesus says something that, again, we need a good set of Hebrew Bible lenses to understand what he's saying. He says, you're, 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 you're believing, Nathaniel, because I told you about seeing you under the fig tree? You ain't seen nothing yet. He says, truly, truly, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you want to say, what is he talking about? And he's talking about Genesis 28. He's talking about Jacob sleeping near Haran. As Genesis 28, verse 12 reads, that as Jacob dreamed, behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And Jacob has such a profound experience because of this vision of the ladder between earth and heaven. When he wakes up, he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What Jacob's ladder, that dream, that vision is about, is that Jacob is given this promise, this hope, that even the great separation between earth and heaven, the great separation between a sinful, broken humanity and a holy and righteous God, that there could be a ladder built. And then the angels can go up and down it. That heaven is open. The gate of heaven is there. That suddenly we too can actually ascend and be in God's presence through that ladder. That's the vision. That's the hope that Jacob had. And jo Jacob and every one of his sons and daughters, generation after generation, hoped for the day that that ladder could become a reality. And then Jesus stands here in John chapter 1 and says to Nathaniel, you will see greater things than this. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, but not this time on a ladder on the Son of Man. It will be no ladder that will breach the gap between heaven and earth. It will be me my own body, I will be the bridge. I will be the way that a broken humanity can be in God's presence. How can we ever be in God's presence? It would take an enormous sacrifice. It would take a sacrifice the size of his passion. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Day on Sunday, Easter. See, Jesus is bearing the sin of Nathaniel and you and me. And as we meet him, as we hear of his story, as we hear his gospel in the church, he puts this on display for us again and again. You cannot bridge heaven on your own. You need me. You need my sacrifice. One of the greatest moments in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, it came out when I was uh, in seminary. I remember going to it and watching this. And that moment, it's, it's extra biblical. It's, it's not in the crucifixion text, but it comes out of Revelation. It is biblical. What Jesus says, at one point, Jesus falls as he's carrying the cross up Calvary and his mother runs to him. And in that moment, he says to his mother, quoting Revelation, see mother, I go to make all things new. Jesus and his passion is what is put on display for the church every day we gather. 
And this is what will change a life. This is what will change a person. I remember the first time I really understood the gospel and his passion for me, unworthy as I am. All of a sudden, Charles Wesley's hymn lyrics began to make sense. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That is the gospel. That is the passion that is put on display in front of the community every time we gather. We cannot offer this to the world. Only meeting Jesus can make this kind of offer. Our job as evangelists is not to have that burden that says, oh, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to sort out every argument they may give? How am I going to bear every burden on their shoulders? Our job as evangelists is to be those witnesses that Christ has called us to be, to invite the world to come and see Jesus here in his church, word and sacrament lived out in a community. And as they come, they will find Their problem identified, sin. Jesus will get very personal. I know everything about you. And even so, they'll hear his passion. I love you even knowing it all. Nathaniel saw this all take place. Um, He shows up again at the end of John's gospel in chapter 21 on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. There, after the resurrection, there's Nathaniel. So he's gone through it. He's seen what Jesus promised. That moment on Calvary, that resurrection moment. And it propels Nathaniel, who we also know likely is that other second name that often scriptural folks get. You know, he's Nathaniel, but he's also Bartholomew, very likely, one of the 12. And Bartholomew takes this transformation and he goes out telling the whole world to come and see Jesus. And he dies a martyr bringing the gospel to India. I mean, can you imagine if you ask Philip now in glory, Philip, did you have any idea in that moment when you went up to Nathaniel and said, come and see, did you have any idea the impact it would have on the world? Did you know that India would hear the gospel for the first time because that one question you asked him? Do you begin to imagine what God could do and will do with the people in your life and my life who we invite to come and see? I mean, it boggles the imagination. Where do we find our courage as evangelists? Our biggest challenge with evangelism is a doctrinal error, a theological error, thinking it's up to us. Our job is to invite, come and see, Our job is to pray that we would grow to be the kind of church where when they do come and see, they will see Jesus here. But Jesus does the converting. Many, many years ago, there was a very hard-hearted student in the town that I grew up in. Angry, aggressive, especially when matters of religion came up. And then one day, a friend of his, this evangelist student, had found Jesus, become a Christian, 
and began inviting him to come and see. And this hard-hearted student had all the answers in the book to say why he didn't want religion, didn't want God, didn't want that kind of morality. And this evangelist student was just tenacious and faithful and loving and kept inviting him to church. Come and see, come and see for a year. And after a year, that hard-hearted student finally gave in and came to church And as he came in, in that night, his first visit, he met the Lord Jesus in the most profound and powerful way, made a 180 degree turn in his life and became a Christian. And in this story, I am not the evangelist student. I am the hard hearted student. It was my friend Jay, who I give thanks for tenaciously, lovingly inviting me for a year to come to church. Come and see, Paul. Jesus did the rest. Christ Church, this is why we exist. We exist to know Jesus and invite the world to come and see. This is our reason. This is the only hope that this world has. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.